0: Good morning, church. I'm excited this morning to begin a new series on the parables we're calling Side Door Stories. And I'll tell you a little more of the reason for that title in a little bit. Uh, it was four or five years ago uh, that the search committee was gathered here to search for a preacher at Greenville Oak Church of Christ. Keith Maloney was a longtime preacher, and it was time to search for someone new to fill this, uh, this place. And I know one of the principles that that team, as they listen to sermons, Uh, focused on was the importance of the clarity of the communication that a preacher would provide. There was a point that was made, that there was application that was given, that there was illustration that made things more clear. I grew up with that same conception about what preaching is. That preaching is about the clear transfer of information from God through some individual Um, using the Holy Spirit to communicate to our hearts and our lives. And I hope in many ways that's been true of these last almost four years that I've been here. It has been such a blessing for our family. Well, this morning and over the next few weeks, I want to convince you that there's more than one way to preach. And sometimes preaching shouldn't make things easier to understand or communicate information clearly. Sometimes preaching should confuse Sometimes preaching should go against the conventional wisdom. And sometimes preaching should invite the hearers into a world where the hearer has to discern what to do with the odd sermon that's left with them. In other words, if you've ever left one of our services and you've thought, what in the world was Colin talking about? I want to be okay with that because I think Jesus was actually okay with that when he preached from time to time. In other words, Uh, I think these side door stories are an insight into the parables that weren't always the easiest kind of stories that people heard, and they always took away with some kind of thing to do. Sometimes a clarity about what Jesus was actually talking about. In fact, sometimes people walked away just saying, I don't know what that was about. I've titled this series side door stories because that's what the parables are. Growing up, I assumed that the parables were a clear mode of Transmission of information. If Jesus had a point, he would tell a story. It was like a sermon illustration, right? It would clarify the point he was trying to make. But that's actually not why Jesus tells parables. If you have your Bibles, open with me if you would to Matthew chapter 13, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. I want to read here the reason why Jesus tells parables. And it's a little bit shocking compared to what I grew up assuming was the truth about what parables were. And as I've looked over the last few weeks studying for this series, I've realized these are some strange stories. So in this parable, the parable of the sower, Jesus talks about planting seeds. Now this person goes out and plants seeds on different kinds of soil. He describes the four different kinds of soils. One soil is good. The rest are, have trouble hearing the word for different reasons. And at the end of that, the disciples are trying to understand what all this is about. What's this parable business, Jesus? And Jesus tells them in Matthew 13, beginning in verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In other words, Jesus tells parables so that those with ears to hear might hear the message that he's saying if they'll listen closely. Even the disciples, they'll ask him often after he tells a story, hey, explain that to us but he also tells stories so that the truth of the kingdom of God might remain hidden to those to whom it's not yet revealed. Now, a lot of the spiritual talk that we receive in our culture is trying to explain things as clearly as possible. It confirms our suspicions. Parables are a different kind of genre. Sermon illustrations, they usually clarify a truth, but a parable is different. A parable invites you into a conundrum. Parables are what I would call anti-wisdom. In other words, parables challenge conventional thinking. They're meant to provoke us into new modes of thinking. Parables are absurd, and they force you to do some work. They're disturbing. They turn the world upside down. A parable, as we've said, is a side door story. It goes one way, and then all of a sudden, there's a shock at the end. So today, what I want to do is I want to do several things. I want to tell you a parable that you know already. I'm going to tell you a parable that you won't like. And then I'm going to tell you two stories and parables that Jesus told. And then we're going to experience a parable together. And then I'm going to tell you a parable that actually happened. And then we'll close with one more parable for good measure. How's that? Let's pray as we open to these stories today. God, we, uh, we thank you for all of the different genres you give to us in scripture. There's history there. There's wisdom there. There's uh, poetry and there's prayers that mean so much to us in moments where we're not sure what to pray. There's also these parables. There's these odd stories that Jesus tells that have become so familiar that we lose their shock. We lose the surprise of what's really there. So God, over these next few weeks, I pray that you would open these stories to us again, that we would see how relevant they are to our modern day culture, that we would be confused again, shocked again, so that we might see your kingdom even more clearly. So God, help us to have ears to hear the good news this morning. This morning, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. That's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, first, a parable that you know. Not from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 12, 2 Samuel 12. Let me set this up for a moment just so you know the context of what I'm about to read. This is a story at a key moment in Israel's history. King David is on the throne at this time, and King David has made some massive mistakes. If any of you have had a bad weekend, he had a worse one this time because... He, uh, he actually sleeps with uh, the wife of one of his soldiers who's uh, on the battle that he sent him on. And then he pulls back this, this soldier from war, encourages him to go home with his wife so that he can cover up the assault that's happened. And when he refuses to the, do that because he's too honorable to, uh, to do and, and, and involve himself in this cover up, he sends him to the front lines of the battle and, and this guy ends up dying. David ends up taking his wife, ends up pregnant. It's a mess. And uh, you can see, I guess, from this story that there's nothing new under the sun, that absolute power corrupts then just as it corrupts now. And in those days, every king had something that would be good for kings to have today too, because they had a prophet, a prophet that was kind of the counterbalance to the king. So the king was over the entire kingdom, but but there was this prophet that was a truth teller that was supposed to bring truth to challenge the status quo. That was to challenge the king where the king needed challenging. It was this balance that God had provided. And so Nathan was the prophet at this time with King David. And when Nathan finds out about what David has done, he knows he's going to have to confront the king. Well, he doesn't have to, I guess. He has several options. One is he doesn't confront him, but Israel's going to end up in more trouble if he doesn't confess the sin. Or he can take the direct assault approach, right? Hey, David, I know what you've done. You need to confess. You need to repent. You need to change your ways. But Nathan actually chooses a third way, chooses an indirect way, chooses a side door story, tells a parable. I want to read that parable right now. This is in 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town. One rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep. Or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, "As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity." And then Nathan said to David, "You are the man." You see the brilliance of this parable. See, the parable starts with conventional thinking. It starts taking David on this journey. He's taking the seat of the judge. It's looking in on this story, trying to judge fairly in the land. And he hears this, and his response is the proper kind of response. He responds with anger. David responds wanting justice to be done in this situation. But then there's this surprise turn in the story. David is caught because the parable is a parable about what David has done. He has stolen what wasn't his when he had plenty to go around. And in that moment, David realizes he has not concealed his sins. And in verse 13, the confession comes, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan is very shrewd in his use of a parable. You understand that, right? He's taking this indirect approach so that David will see things through somebody else's perspective. And all of a sudden he'll be caught in his own sin, and hopefully the move will be to repentance, and that's exactly what happens in this case. The parable invites David into the world of someone else in order to see what's happened from an entirely different perspective, and the story is quite effective. But second, the parable you won't like. Close your eyes for a moment, if you would, and imagine with me that you've just died and you've gone to heaven, and you're waiting outside the judgment throne, and, and then you're ushered in And you've been a faithful Christian all your life. You tried to do all the right things and treat people well. So you walk before the judgment seat and you discover that on the judgment seat is the devil, this hideous, awful creature. And he says, I have vanquished your God to hell and I have vanquished your Christ to the pit of the void of nothingness. If you just bow your knee to me, you will enter eternal paradise and enjoy your existence for all of eternity. But if you refuse to bow the knee, you will be thrown into hell with your God and with your Christ. So what will you do? Now, I want you to pay attention to what happened inside of you as that story was told, because we've lost the impact of what a parable was supposed to do. In like fact, some of you may be upset saying, wait, well, found, I found a flaw in your story. This story is not even possible. And you want to argue with me the story is impossible because you know that heaven's the realm of God and, and, and hell would be the realm of the evil one. So you want to argue with the premise of the parable. And that's the wrong response. That's not understanding the genre correctly, right? Because a parable is necessarily absurd. A parable isn't a story that's filled with facts. It's a story that's going in the direction we expect, and then it makes a turn, and it catches us in the midst of the parable. Or sometimes we've heard stories taught in a way where the preacher goes off in the study, and he comes, and he tells you the story, and then he says, let me deliver the message or the moral of the story to you. That's not what a parable was originally intended to do. A parable was a story that was told that was intended to catch you, that was intended to surprise you, to come in the side door in a way that you all of a sudden see the world in a completely different way. See, the parable I just told wasn't intended to reveal facts about how the end of the world will occur. Instead, it's intended to unveil the motivation for why we want to go into the afterlife anyway. Do you want to go into the afterlife because you want to be with God beyond all things, even if it means going to hell? Or are you really in this whole kingdom business just so you can have the blessings that God promises? That's what a parable does. It catches you and it checks your motivation. It asks more of you than just a simple sermon illustration. Third, two parables that Jesus told. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. I want to set this up with some context before I read these parables. Luke 15, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And all of a sudden the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they show up and they're wondering why this rabbi Jesus is eating with people he shouldn't be eating with. That's clear in that time. That's not something you do. And so the religious people show up and they utter under their breath, this guy, Jesus, he's, he's too inclusive and he welcomes terrible people to hang out with him. Remember, these people had been conquered by an empire. Military superpower after military superpower have come in and they have invaded the land, these people's land. And their question is something like this. How come we keep getting conquered by all these invading armies? What is the problem? What what is God doing to punish us? Where is God in the midst of this? And there was a religious establishment who believed and said, we have people in our midst who are breaking God's commands. And if we could just perfect our behavior, then God would give us the land back. So they're the problem. They being anyone that was different, that acted different, that had sins different than theirs. Those who were on the outside, if we could just get rid of them. Have you ever heard that phrase before? They're the problem? Scapegoating, right? This is common in our world. It's common in our church system as well, let's be honest. It's like somebody says, hey, preacher, it's great to be all inclusive and stuff, but you can't include fill in the blank." See, Jesus is saying the problem's not with those people. That's what they're saying. You're welcoming those people. They're the ones who are wrong. And to that statement, Jesus doesn't respond by saying you're wrong about that. Here's what the kingdom's about. He doesn't respond by challenging or countering. He he responds by telling three stories. So that's the context where these parables are told. And the first comes in Luke 15, beginning in verse four, verse three. I'm sorry. Let's read this. And Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep, I tell you. Then the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, this is a shocking story that has lost its ability to shock us after we've read it several times. But we read these stories and we learn these a lot of us earlier in our lives, Some of us as babies we were told stories like these. It's, it's shocking from the very first line. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Now to these religious people, it's pretty clear that if you're a shepherd, you are ritually unclean. You're not a person who can come into the temple and be the religious person that you're supposed to be. And so the, the premise from the start is an absurd premise. Well, yeah, there are shepherds out there, but none of us would be that kind of thing, right? What what are you talking about, Jesus? But the next line continues the absurdity. The the assumption there is what? Doesn't he lead the 99 in the open country to find the one? And the answer is obviously no, of course not. What businesswoman or businessman has 100 things, loses one and decides, I'm gonna put all of these at risk and then I'm gonna go search out the one. Now, the answer is obviously no. Again, we've lost the shock of these stories, haven't we? But the assumption of the kingdom of God is upside down. You always pursue the lost thing in the kingdom of God. You always put the 99 at risk for the sake of the one that's been lost. And why? Because you don't cut losses in the kingdom of God. Remember the context. Jesus is telling this to righteous people who are muttering about Jesus' willingness to eat with tax collectors and sinners. This story is troubling to religious people. This story ought to be troubling to us. Because religious people are the 99. And if you're one of the 99, how does it feel to know that Jesus would gladly leave you to predators and all the elements in order to pursue one that decided to wander off and not be responsible? Just irresponsible. I mean, that's the elder you fire, right? If he's off trying to get the one, while all of you are saying, what what about us, right? We need to be taken care of. We need to be discipled. And not only that, Not only does Jesus go off and find this one, but when he comes back, he doesn't use this as a chance to give a moral principle to the whole group, right? He doesn't come in and put him in the center of town in stocks and throw stuff at him and and give him lashes to teach him never to do this again. No, when he shows up, what he does is he throws a party. Celebration is the response. Now, if you're a parent and your child wanders off, is this the first thing you think to do? No, no. You try to ensure that they get the picture. This was dangerous. If you'd wandered into the street without us nearby, this could have have been so dangerous. But what Jesus does is he pulls the sheep back and he gathers everyone together and says, it's time to celebrate. And the 99 are looking around going, really? Celebration was the last thing on our minds. Now, some of you know what this is like to lose things, don't you? And you would celebrate if you found something of value. Then he tells another story, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The woman loses a coin. She sweeps the house. She finds the coin. She celebrates with neighbors and friends. Now, this joy is different than finding $20 in your jacket that you hadn't worn in a while, right? But she knows she's lost this, and she's searched and searched for it, and finally, she finds this lost thing, and she celebrates with these neighbors and friends, which begs the question, did the celebration cost more than the coin itself she was searching for? What kind of person does this kind of thing, right? These are absurd stories. But if you've lost something, you know what it's like to find it. Maybe some of you just this week lost something, right? Lost a, a child, lost a, a wedding ring, lost a cell phone, the worst of all things you could lose, right? Just this last week as I was writing this sermon, I realized as I was looking for a book that it was not there on my shelf. And this book had a lot of meaning because it had been given to me as a gift. It was a valuable book. I'd, I'd underlined it and everything. It came and it had meaning to me. There were actually two books. There was another that I found was missing. And I, I just share that story to say, if you have that book, please return it because I want to celebrate with you, okay? I'm serious. See, when you know you've lost something and you find it, all the value when you're actually actually able to find it, I'll celebrate with you if you find these books. I'll tell you about this. There's nothing that my book is doing right now to be found. Like, the book's not in your house screaming out saying, deliver me back to my owner. Like, that. the book's just sitting there, right? just like the coin sitting there and just like the sheep sitting there, maybe other than a bleat, right? That's about all you're gonna get from that sheep. See, sheep and coins, they, they just kind of stay lost unless someone goes to find them. The engine of this story is not about repentance. It's not about lost things turning around and going home. We'll tell that story next week. is the third story that Jesus tells in Luke 15. This is a story about the owner, that has lost something of value that goes and searches it out and finds it. And Jesus picks this parable in this context for a reason, because God pursues lost things. God pursues lost people. There are no losses that get cut in the kingdom of God. God cares deeply about each and every one. In fact, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than the rest of us who just keep showing up to church. You think Jesus is sending a message to the religious people he's talking to? You bet he is. What's he saying? He's saying, stop hanging out with all these found people all the time. Why don't you go sweep around in places where the lost things might be? And when the lost thing is found, you better get together and you better celebrate. Fourth, a parable that you'll get to experience. Earlier this morning, I came in and I lost something. I lost something of value. I lost a gift card that was taped under one of your seats that you didn't even know about. Now, before you look, you have to say something with me if it's under your seat and you find it, okay? You have to say, rejoice with me, I found my lost gift card, okay? So I want everyone to go on a mad search right now under your seat, under the seat next to you, okay? I need someone to exclaim it loudly with excitement. If you're not looking right now, it might be under your seat. I sure hope this works out. It's okay to go to other sections. We lost. We we sweep the house for it. Someone found it? You've got to get up and say something, right? Now, is everyone? Let's <laughs> we'll celebrate together at Chili's. How's that, all right? Now, be honest. When that was found, were y'all really happy for him? Or was there this sense of, ah, I wish I'd been sitting in the right seat today, right? Lunch would have been planned. This is its own parable. Fifth. A parable that actually happened. I was reading this story about the lost coin, the lost sheep with a a friend recently in a group that was looking at this parable, and and his name's Curtis. Curtis isn't here today. Curtis Williams told the story about growing up in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. And uh, he was in a Boy Scout troop that was doing cleanup on a roadside that they took care of and managed. As they were looking one day, all of a sudden they came across this gold watch And the gold watch on the front had a logo, Phillips 66, which had a a workplace nearby. And on the back of that watch, there was engraved the name of a man who apparently worked for Phillips 66. You know one of the gold watches, right? Work years for this thing, you retire, you get the watch. And so he looked through the phone book, which used to be a thing, kids, and he found the name of this guy. And he calls him up, and this guy is thrilled because he says, look, I... I, we just had our house broken into and burglars took some jewelry and things and they took my watch and I thought, what good is a watch with my name engraved on it? Apparently the thieves had driven off and they tossed us to the side of the road when they noticed there was an engraved name on the back. See, the thieves had no value with this watch, but for this man, it meant the world. This signified the years he'd worked for Philip 66. So you know what he did? He threw a party for those Boy Scouts and for Curtis, who found the watch. See, the kingdom of God is like an oil and gas salesman who discovers that watch that he had lost thanks to the Boy Scouts. For the next six weeks, I'm going to share more parables with you. Jesus loved teaching with parables in in Mark chapter 4 I want to read this real quick it talks about how often he taught with parables this is Mark 4 verse 33 and 34 listen to this with many similar parables Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand he did not say anything to them without using a parable but when he was alone with his disciples he explained everything now I hope I can explain some things to you but I got to guarantee you there are some things like one of these weeks I'm just going to say I don't know the answer in two weeks, I'm preaching on the unjust steward. I'm going to be working on that this week, and I have no clue what it's about. One of the most bizarre stories in Scripture. So I don't come with you to, 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 with these stories to you to say, hey, I spent all week in a study. Here's the moral. That, that's the wrong way to preach a parable. A parable is supposed to be teased out. A parable is supposed to be talked about over the lunch table. A, a parable is supposed to be pulled apart and understood in the first century context, it's supposed to shock and surprise. And so I hope you'll come, not with all the previous sermons you've heard before about these parables in mind, but to hear a fresh word each week, to hear these stories and hear how they might land in our culture again. So if you're somebody who likes black or white thinking and clear answers, uh, the next six weeks are gonna be a little frustrating. But if you like reading poetry, or if you like going to the movie that you can't quite understand the ending, but you love to tease it out afterward at dinner, I encourage you to come back with a fresh mind and fresh insight, because there's a lot here that I'm excited to share with you. It's really pretty exciting to step into these stories again in a fresh way. And if you want to put your hand to paper, or I guess these days you can type it out, I want to challenge those of you who are writers or want to write a little bit to maybe write a parable of your own over these next several weeks. I'd love to see what comes out. I mean, you don't have to be that great of a writer actually to come up with a parable. There's not a lot of character development in these stories. It's not a, not a long story that you write. You've got to have a principle. And what you're trying to do is it's, it's a dialectic discourse is what they call it, right? You're, you're headed down a track with conventional thinking. Everyone's set up to go a different direction. And you're going to kind of make a side door turn at the end to illuminate and invite people into a new world to see the world in a, a slightly off-kilter way. It's, it's what a comedian does if you think about it, right? A good comedian begins a joke by talking about something that leads everybody's minds in a certain direction. But the aha, the humor comes when you kind of redirect that in a direction. That's exactly what a parable is. So I'd love to see what you come up with. If you want to write or type these out, send them to me by email. And who knows, I might even share one of those a little bit later in our series. But let me close with one more parable. So there's a young guy who's arrogant. He's in his 20s or so. And he goes to this rabbi who's in his 70s and he says, I want to know more about the wisdom of God. And the rabbi laughs. He says, you're in your 20s. What could you possibly know? Come back to me in 20 years when you've wisened up. The young guy says, no, 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 no. I, I, I know Aristotelian logic. I know symbolic logic. I'm ready for the logic of God. So the rabbi says, okay, let me ask you a question. The rabbi, uh, the rabbi says to him, he says, "Two guys uh, go down a chimney, And when they get to the bottom, one has soot on his face and the other doesn't. Which one wipes his face? And the young guy says, well, that's obvious. The one with soot on his face. (laughs) And the rabbi says, no, not at all. The guy without soot on his face. And why? Because he sees the other person has soot on his face. And therefore he thinks, I must have soot on my face. And so he wipes his face. So the young guy says, oh, of course, of course. Listen, try me again. So the rabbi says, let me ask you a different question. Two guys come down a chimney. One has soot on his face, the other doesn't. Which one washes his face? And the guy says, well, the one without the soot on his face, because he saw his friend, he says, no, 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 you're thinking too hard. Stop trying to be smart. Of course not. It's the guy with soot on his face. Who goes down a chimney, has soot in his mouth and in his eyes, and doesn't wipe his face? The guy's confused. So He says, try me one more time. The rabbi says, okay, this time I'll ask you another question. He says, two guys come down a chimney... At the bottom, one has soot on his face and the other doesn't. Who wipes his face? And the guy goes, was it my first answer for a different reason? The rabbi says, no, they both wash their face. Who goes down a chimney and doesn't wash their face? Come back to me in 20 years when you've wisened up. Let those with ears hear the word of the Lord. God, we thank you for these odd stories. Odd stories that are filled with meanings that mean something in one light, and then when we turn the prism a little bit, we see they mean something else, or we see them early on in these ways, and you invite us into new meanings, and you invite us into new ways of seeing your kingdom. God, a lot of us have heard these stories before. But there's a lot of ways to see how your kingdom breaks forth in our world, and these stories take on new significance in the midst of new world events, in the midst of new culture and context, and technology, and all of the things you brought into our world, God, these stories that are so old are so fresh. And God, I pray for those of us in the room this morning who feel like we're lost someplace and just need to be found. I pray that you would use some others of us to act as brooms and act as search parties to find and celebrate those who feel lost or are lost right now. God, I thank you for stories about how you leave the 99 to pursue the one. What a reckless story, God. What a strange story that just it, it bothers our sensibilities about what's right and what's wrong in our world, and yet this is your upside-down kingdom. It's what you come to deliver. As religious people, God, it seems like Jesus always has a word for us that we're more on the outside than we ever imagined. That means we can be on the inside when we acknowledge it. So God help us to see how much you desire us and how much you long to be close to us and how much you desire us to move closer and closer into your kingdom. Use these stories to do that just like they did in the first century. God, we thank you so much for Jesus and for his life and for his ministry and for his sermons and for his stories. God, we are still intrigued. He's the most important person who's ever lived. And he calls us to be people who live the abundant life with him. And so, God, that's our prayer today, is that you would lead us toward life life abundant. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.